You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's dark. You're sitting in front of the mirror getting ready for bed. There's nobody else in the house. You see something move in the corner of your eye. You glance to your right, but you don't see anything. Another minute goes by, and you think you see movement again. So you slowly turn to your left, but again, the room is empty. You turn back around, and staring you face to face in the mirror is a cat. You jump back, because you don't have a cat, and there's no cat in the room. But there he is, staring at you in the mirror. Welcome to Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week, we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Now, step into the supernatural world of pets with your Paranormal Pets ghostly host, Brandy Stark. Welcome to Paranormal Pets. I am your host, Brandy Stark, and for this episode, we are doing a little bit of a potpourri with an article on therapy dogs at funeral homes, a reader submission on a ghost cat, and then we are going to talk about the next human-animal hybrid in our series, the Marvelous Minotaur. And we will get started with these things right after this message. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. It's hard to find time for your furry family member. That's where Camp Bow Wow comes in. All-day play and overnight camp, daycare and boarding for dogs. Everything is included. Large play areas for fun and exercise. Spacious cabins, comfy cots, even live camper cams to watch from a computer or smartphone. Camp Bow Wow offers the best care and is the place to go where a dog can be a dog. For locations and more information, visit CampBowWow.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. And welcome back. Just so you all know, I am still very dutifully working on my thesis on the Dance Macabre, and it has brought me into contact with a bunch of wonderful, wonderful things. Fortunately, I enjoy this topic because I will be doing thesis hour every night until I die. But that's okay. We're going to get this thing done. 36 pages and counting. So the first thing that I thought I would do is a little bit of an episode to tie back to an interview, the last one we did, I believe for episode 70, dealing with pets and passing over. This one is actually animals helping people dealing with human death. This is an article that came up through iheartdogs.com. It is called Therapy Dog at Funeral Home Helps Grievers in an Amazing Way. And this is by Karen Harris from July 6th, 2016. 
Funerals and wakes are emotional events surrounded by depression, despair, and even dread. But thanks to one employee at the Ballard Durand Funeral and Cremation Services in White Plains, New York, many visitors feel a surge of something completely unexpected, comfort. Lulu is a people-loving golden doodle who works at the funeral home and brings smiles to some visitors' darkest days. I walked into the funeral home and Lulu came running toward me and my sister, said 26-year-old Chelsea Sewells in a story by today as she recalled the day of her brother's funeral. We were shocked and we started giggling. She immediately started to comfort us just by her presence alone. According to the story, Ballard Durand president Matthew Fiorio was inspired to get a therapy dog during an anxiety-inducing incident at the airport. When a canceled flight threw a wrench in his plans, a Maltese who was walking by with its owner completely changed his mood. A wave of calmness washed over me, and after it happened, I was like, wow, that was really powerful, he told today. I started researching the benefits of having a dog around and ways to implement it in the funeral home. Lulu's instinct was to bring joy to the grief-stricken and has made her a requested employee at many of the Ballard Durand services. She's developed an uncanny knack for knowing who needs her. She'll park herself right next to an older person and let them pet her one minute, and the next she's prancing around with kids. It's been really impressive to watch, he told today. The funeral home president says that in this emotionally taxing line of work, Lulu even helps him with his day-to-day duties. She's part of the team, no question about that. It's clear that she's eager to be a part of what we do, and she wants to help people, Furiel said in this story. Dogs are so amazing, and they're resilient in times of tragedy. Their capacity to love is never-ending. Lulu is another example of how dogs can bring comfort and joy to humans in a way that no one else can. Thanks for all of your wonderful work, sweetheart. And it's actually interesting because it follows up with a question, do you think more funeral homes should employ service animals like Lulu? And what I do find rather interesting is that in my work as a professor, even though Uh, I get to deal with the most awesome topics ever of humanities and religious studies. I do teach on the St. Petersburg College Allstate campus. It also houses the police and fire academies. And I do know both at the Allstate campus and the campus where I teach, which is downtown, they do bring in service animals, particularly around stressful time periods. I believe the University of South Florida St. Petersburg campus does the same thing. And um, it's pretty amazing. I will say that even though the pugs can, I'm pretty sure, outsmart me and they have, uh, they seem to sense when I'm stressed and tired and that's when they get to be the naughtiest. But at the same time, they are an immense comfort and certainly keep me from probably having a coronary and collapsing. So I'm thinking that in today's world, particularly the more chaotic it becomes, and we've certainly seen quite a few events recently in the news and the world is seemingly in another state of turbulence. The more I study of humanity, the more I begin to realize that we are pretty much consistently in a state of turbulence. But as this becomes more forensic and more out there and more in our faces, again, kind of seems to be a bit of an uptick, I suspect pets are going to be incredibly important to people to help keep us grounded. I've had the conversation again today. A friend of mine recently got a, a new job at a corporate location and was just really astounded at how everything was done online and there was no interpersonal communication. This particular location apparently gets something like 20,000 applications a month 
they have one HR department and it covers a multi-state area. So, you know, definitely a lot of employees feeling disconnected because there is no one you can talk to. And I know I feel the same. I think we all do. The internet is a wonderful thing, but when it removes that human contact, I honestly do think it makes us more defensive. If we miss something, it's because we didn't look at the website. And again, I think that's where animals are very important uh, to act as a diffuser and to assist us in kind of regrounding ourselves and getting away from the internet and uh, other people. <laughs> so just, uh, you know, things to think about. And apparently my pugs are thinking right now. Oddly enough, that's a little stress for my pug because my rats are having a little conversation in the background, which always excites the pugs. I have a uh, recent batch of rescued rats and uh, a pretty big mixture of girls right now, which is very unusual. And girls are very interesting because they don't always get along and they will, they don't fight, but they will squeak at each other and uh, kind of squeak at each other's faces. <laughs> it's a really interesting phenomena. No outright fights, but they do seem to, to squawk every now and again. Uh, and then it kind of blows over and everything's cool for a while. And then, you know, every now and again, there's a little squawk. So I guess tonight's going to be the night, naturally, while I'm trying to do these recordings. But we're just going to let that go. So the reader entry that I wanted to talk about, I had gotten a submission on the Shadow Animal site. Unfortunately, I am not supposed to share it. So the only thing I can say is the person asked about perhaps an attached animal spirit or shadow animal that seems to manifest for this individual in multiple locations, including moves across the nation. So I did post the question about animal spirit attachment, and I did get a couple of interesting entries. So Michael, and I'm going to apologize if I completely slaughter this last name, Gerardelli. It is Italian, and I am notoriously bad with the name along this genre. But Michael G. from the other coast of Florida said that I see a cat that was my wife's cat that passed before I was with her. Almost nightly, I see him walk into the kitchen from the living room, as well as one night I opened the back door to walk out, and something invisible ran between myself and the door. It bumped against my calf relatively hard, and the space was small. I felt the fur and movement from it booking outside, but there was nothing there. So I asked, how long ago did the cat pass away, and why do you think it still remains with you? Did it pass in the house, or is it attached to her, and are there significant events that bring the cat to manifest? And he answered, the cat passed about three years ago, but I've seen him literally since I moved here. He was put down outside of the home. To me, it seems like he's attached to his old routine more than any singular thing. He also will climb up into the bed, and you can actually feel the mattress move. I had noticed it not long after I moved in, but never said anything. My wife about a year ago confided in me that she still feels him jump on the bed and move around, but... She thought it was just her herself thinking she had felt something that wasn't there or wasn't happening until I told her of my experiences. Maybe it's a residue, I don't know. There's also a female spirit that hangs around the garage in the kitchen. At night, we have animals all inside, and one will meow until we let him go out into the back porch. One night, I forgot about him, and he stayed out there for about five hours. The next night, I let him out, and I left myself a reminder to let him back inside. When I let him out, I shut the door and locked the outside door and walked out of the kitchen. Immediately, I realized I had forgotten something, turned around, and the back door was unlocked and opened just wide enough for the cat to get back inside. I heard nothing, and all of this transpired in less than 8 to 10 seconds. 
which is pretty interesting. Apparently, if we miss with our pets, hopefully the other side will keep an eye on us and help out. I did ask if I could post this, and he said, absolutely. And then I did get one other response from Ellen in Tennessee, and uh, she said, I haven't had this happen to me, but my daughter has. One of our deceased cats evidently followed her from Lexington to Louisville. She only saw it once, as far as I know. So there you go. So if you have any attached animal spirits, let us know. But I think these uh, firsthand experiences are pretty important, particularly as they give additional insight and connection to anyone who's had any kind of supernatural experience. All right, so that's the first part of our potpourri. The second part is basically going to be a little bit about the Minotaur. Again, this is from the textbook Monsters, a Bedford Spotlight Reader by Andrew J. Hoffman. It's a really pretty decent textbook. And just to paraphrase, this is by George A. Louis Bourget, who says, The idea of a house built expressly so that people will become lost in it may be stranger than the idea of a man with the head of a bull, and yet the two ideas may reinforce one another. Indeed, the image of the labyrinth and the image of the minotaur seem to go together. It is fitting that at the center of a monstrous house there should live a monstrous inhabitant. The Minotaur, half man, half bull, was born out of the lovemaking of Pasphae, or Pasphae, the queen of Crete, with a white bull sent by Poseidon from the sea. Daedalus, the artificer who built the device that allowed such a passion to be consummated, also built the labyrinth destined to house and hide the monstrous offspring. The Minotaur ate human flesh to satisfy its hunger. The king of Crete required that Athens render Crete a yearly tribute of seven youths and seven maidens. Theseus resolved to save his kingdom from the terrible taxation and volunteered to go. Ariadne, the daughter of the king, gave the young man a spool of thread so that he would not become lost in the mazy corridors of the labyrinth, and the hero killed the minotaur and followed the thread out of the maze. Ovid, in an attempt at a witty turn of phrase, speaks of a man half bull and the bull half man. Ovid, you are so clever. Okay, let me try that again. Ovid, in an attempt at a witty turn of phrase, speaks of the man half bull and the bull half man. There we go. Dante, who was familiar with the words of the ancients, but not with their coins and monuments, pictured the Minotaur with the head of a man and the body of a bull in Inferno, book 12, lines 1 through 30. The worship of the bull and the double-headed axe, whose name was Labrys, and so may well have evolved into the labyrinth, was characteristic of the pre-Hellenic religions, which held sacred festivals in their honor. To judge from murals, human figures with the heads of bulls featured in Cretan demonology, the Greek fable of the Minotaur is probably a late and somewhat uncouth version of a very ancient myth, the shadow of other still more horrific dreams. It's a very dramatic statement. So when we return, we will take a look at the myth of the Minotaur. We'll give it a little bit of background information, and then we'll get ready to wrap this episode up. So we'll return right after these messages. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. Retrievers, 
Labradors, Goldens are the main breeds that come through our door, but we'll train anything with four legs and a tail. My husband and I own a kennel. We train hunting dogs and also have a boarding and grooming business. Our dogs, they're athletes, and we feed a very quality food. You can't get enzymes in a commercial dog food because they cook it at such a high heat that so much important nutrition is just cooked right out of it. But adding Dynavite to their diet has every single dog in my kennel looking better than they have ever looked. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. If you want the dog to be healthy, you got to feed it something healthy. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E. <laughs> Dynavite's the bomb. 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Dynavite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot oh. com. Are you having trouble getting the word out about your new pet product or invention? Let Whitegate PR open the gate to your marketing and public relations efforts. We've been specializing in public relations in the pet industry for over a decade. From press releases to media relations and publicity to pet trade shows and launch events to social media, the pet-friendly team at Whitegate PR has you covered. If you listen to the wise words of Bill Gates, he says, If I had $1 left, I'd spend it on PR. Learn more at whitegatepr.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLiferadio.com. Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. And welcome back. We are going to read the Apollodorus version of the Birth of the Minotaur. Apollodorus is a uh, pretty well-known mythic writer from the ancient world. I do cite him when it comes to uh, King Lycaon and the werewolf stories when I do presentations on the evolution of the werewolf. I have to say there is one issue that I've always had with the Minotaur story, and that is that the king is really the transgressor. Poseidon sends a beautiful bull. The king decides he wants the bull to breed with his herds and decides to keep it rather than sacrifice it as he was intended to do. And so his queen, Pasphae, is the one who suffers for it. Marriage in the ancient Greek world was typically arranged. Love hopefully came afterwards. It was certainly a partnership. But I've always found that to be rather interesting. We do know that there are other cultures and other religious cults in which you might actually end up with a sexual relationship between human and animal as part of a symbolic relationship or even a symbolic relationship between human and animal as connecting the person to a God figure. But I have to say that was always an issue for me. Poor Pasphae has to endure not only this inhuman lust. I mean, that's got to be interesting to deal with. But then she ends up consummating this lust, which has got to be interesting, and then ultimately giving birth to a monster, which has to be hidden away. It seems to me that even though it's the king that transgresses, it's her reputation that is ruined. And I've always thought that that was very much unfair. But that being said, let's check out what we have with the birth of the Minotaur. In a story of pride and arrogance brought down, Minos prays to the god Poseidon that a bull be brought forth from the sea so that he could be seen to have the favor 
of the gods. In return, Minos promises to sacrifice the bull to Poseidon. Poseidon provides the bull, but when Minos reneges on his part of the deal, the god has his revenge. He causes Minos' wife, Paspe, to fall in love with the bull, mate with it, and produce a horrific child, the half-man, half-bull Minotaur. The story is recorded in the library, a three-book collection of ancient myths and legends traditionally attributed to the Greek historian Apollodorus. That authorship has been discounted, however, as Apollodorus lived four centuries before the library was written. Oh, details, right? Okay. Asterius dying childless, Minos wished to reign over Crete, but his claim was opposed. So he alleged that he had received the kingdom from the gods, and in proof of it, he said that whatever he prayed for would be done. And in sacrificing to Poseidon, he prayed that a bull might appear from the depths, promising to sacrifice it when it appeared. Poseidon did send him up a fine bull, and Minos obtained the kingdom, but he sent the bull to the herds and sacrificed another. Being the first to obtain the dominion of the sea, he extended his rule over almost all of the islands. Interesting. But angry at him for not sacrificing the bull, Poseidon made the animal savage and contrived that pacify should conceive a passion for it. In her love for the bull, she found an accomplice in Daedalus, an architect who had been banished from Athens for murder. He constructed a wooden cow on wheels, took it, hollowed it out in the inside, sewed it up in the hide of a cow which he had skinned, and set it in the meadow in which the bull used to graze. Then he introduced Pasphi into it, and the bull came and coupled with it as if it was a real cow, and she gave birth to Asterius, who was called the Minotaur. He had the face of a bull, but the rest of him was human, and Minos, in compliance with certain oracles, shut him up and guarded him in the labyrinth. Now in the labyrinth, which Daedalus constructed, was a chamber that, with its tangled windings, perplexed the outward way. The story of the Minotaur and Androgeus and Phaedra and Ariadne I will tell hereafter in my account of Theseus. Now, this is already a fairly interesting tale to begin with, so we definitely have some nice forbidden love. It is not the first time that we are going to see a bull image introduced into ancient mythology. For example, if you ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh, Ishtar Easter has a manages to sway her daddy's ear. She is the goddess of love and war. And she looks down from heaven and basically sees Gilgamesh, who is the king of Uruk, two-thirds god and one-third man, mortal. And in a very interesting twist of roles, particularly for about 2700 BCE, she basically calls down and says, Hello, handsome, I would like to marry you. And Gilgamesh, in response, says, Are you kidding me? Unfortunately, as the goddess of love and war, which... If you ever study both love and sexuality and then compare that to war, the ancients, you know, they seem to kind of parallel this quite a bit. Even in Hinduism, uh, love and hate, if you will, are two sides of the same coin because, again, you are obsessed. With love, you're obsessed with a person for the good. With hate, you're obsessed with a person for the bad. But anyhow, unfortunately, Gilgamesh does things like tell Easter, if you will. Mm, yeah, I don't think I am going to marry you because let's look at all of your exes. <laughs> and that's a really bad move. You know, you slept with the horse, you got tired of him, you threw him out of bed, and we put a bit in his mouth and his spirit was broken. You slept with the lion, uh, you got tired of him, you kicked him out of bed, and now we hunt him down. You slept with your gardener, you kicked him out of bed, and then he shrank into a mole and he digs in your garden. And so you want me 
to be your husband? I don't think so. And so, of course, uh, that's pretty insulting. And Ishtar does not take that well. And so she goes to her father, the king of heaven, and says, send down the great bull. And daddy, by golly, does. Ultimately, he did insult Ishtar. It's still a personal vendetta. Gilgamesh and his uh, beta male companion, Enkidu, or Enkidu, basically fight the bull. And Enkidu, who has already been cursed and has all sorts of other things in the background, y'all really should read the myth and the epic, ends up coming up with this idea of killing the bull. And on top of that, he takes the quote-unquote thigh of the bull and throws it into Ishtar's face, which is a, a pretty vulgar thing to do. And at that point, you know, the gods cannot overlook that. It is no longer uh, simply a personal vendetta that says transgressed into insulting the deities themselves, killing the great bull. And this bull actually was pretty cool because it, I would not ever want to meet it, but it came to the earth and it pounded its hoof upon the earth and there were earthquakes and droughts and all sorts of natural disasters. I mean, this was uh, most likely a symbol for death of the land. It is also interesting to note that the bull is going to be associated with heaven in part because uh, of the horns. Uh, The horns are very much synonymous with the moon. And of course, the moon is a symbol of femininity, particularly because it waxes and wanes. It does have cycles, as women do, and it lives, dies, and is reborn. So the moon is this hugely symbolic thing, which is pretty cool. So let's see how the Minotaur ends up. We'll check into a little bit of the Theseus legend and kind of, uh, well, you have to know it doesn't end well for the Minotaur. I'm just going to give you that spoiler, but we'll go ahead and wrap up that myth. Okay, so here is not the best translation, but certainly with the story text. All right, so picking up the story of the Minotaur. As for Athens, Minos demanded that every year the king send him seven young men and seven young women. Why do we send these young people to Crete every year? Theseus asked his father, the king of Athens, and why is it that none of them ever return? Because if we did not send them, Minos would wage war on us, and it is a war that we would not win, said King Aegeus. And they do not return because they do not go to Crete as slaves. They go as food for the Minotaur. Father, this is terrible, shouted Theseus. We cannot let this go on. We cannot sacrifice any more of our young citizens to this tyrant. When it is time to send the next tribute, I will go as one of them, and I vow that it is the last time that the Minotaur will be fed with the flesh of any of our people. Try as he might, his father could not persuade him to change his mind. Aegeus reminded him that every year other young men had sworn to slay the terrible beast, and they had never been seen again. Theseus insisted that he understood the dangers, but would succeed. I would rather return to you, father, cried Theseus as the ship left the harbor wall, and you will be proud of your son. Then I wish you good luck, my son, cried his father. I shall keep watch for you every day. If you are successful, take down the black sails and replace them with white ones. That way I will know that you are coming home safe to me. As the ship docked in Crete, King Minos himself came down to inspect the prisoners from Athens. He enjoyed the chance to taunt the Athenians and to humiliate them even further. Is this all your king has to offer this year? He jeered. Such puny creatures, hardly even a snack for the mighty creature within the labyrinth. Anyway, let's get on with it. I'm not a hard-hearted man, so I will let you choose which one goes first into the Minotaur's den. Who is it to be? Theseus stepped forward. I will go first. I am Theseus, prince of Athens, and I do not fear what is within the walls of your maze. Those are brave words for one so young and so feeble, but the Minotaur will soon have you between its horns. 
Guards opened the labyrinth and sent him in. Standing behind the king, listening, was his daughter Ariadne. From the moment she set eyes on Theseus, Ariadne fell in love with him. And as she listened to her father's goading and taunting the young prince, she decided that she would help him. As he entered the labyrinth, the guards walked away, and she called softly to him. Theseus, take this, she whispered. Even if you kill the Minotaur, you will never find your way out again. She threw him a great ball of string, and he tied one end of it to the entrance. He smiled at her, turned began to make his way into the maze, the string playing out behind him as he went. Theseus walked carefully through the dark, foul-smelling passages of the labyrinth, expecting at any moment to come face to face with the creature. He did not have long to wait. Turning a corner, with his hands held out in front of him, feeling his way, he suddenly touched what felt like a huge, bony horn. In an instant, his world turned upside down. Quite literally, he was picked up between the Minotaur's horns and tossed high into the air. When he landed on the hard, cold stone, he felt the animal's huge hooves come down on his chest. Every last breath seemed to be knocked out of him, and he struggled to stay alive in the darkness. But Theseus was no ordinary man. He was the son of a king, and he was brave, but he was stubborn. And the Minotaur bellowed in his ear and grabbed at him with its hairy arm. Theseus found the strength, which he did not know he possessed. He grabbed the animal's huge horns and kept on twisting the great head from side to side. As the animal grew weak, Theseus gave one almighty tug on the head, turning it almost right around. The creature's neck snapped. It gurgled its last breath and fell to the floor with an enormous thud. It was over. He had done it. The Minotaur was dead. All he had to do was make his way out of, and then he realized the awful truth. In the struggle, he had let go of the string, his lifeline. Theseus felt all over the floor in the pitch darkness and kept thinking he had found it, only to realize that all as he had was a long, wiry hair from the Minotaur. Danger set in, and Theseus wondered if this was where his life would end, down in the dark, all alone, next to a stinking body. Then his hand brushed a piece of string, and with a whoop of delight, he knew that he had found the thread, which would lead him back out. As he neared the entrance of the labyrinth, the darkness began to fade, and he made out the figure of Ariadne waiting for his return. You must take me back to Athens with you, she cried. My father will kill me when he finds out what I have done to help you. But of course you must come with me, said Theseus. It would be cruel to leave you here. Quickly and quietly they unfurled the great black sails of their ship and headed for home. I cannot believe how my life has changed, said Ariadne, as they sailed across the calm seas towards Athens, to think that I am free of my cruel father and that I will soon be married to a great prince. Married, said Theseus. Oh yes, that will be wonderful. But in truth, Theseus did not really find her attractive. So when their ship docked at an island on their way home to collect fresh water, Theseus sent Ariadne off to find bread and fruit. The moment she was gone, he set sail and left her on the island. Now you might think that this was a bad way to reward someone who had helped him and had saved him from certain death. The gods clearly thought the same thing, for they had further horror in store for him as punishment for his ungrateful treatment of the young girl. In his haste to get away, Theseus forgot to change his sails to white, and King Aegeus, waiting on the headland, saw the ship approaching with the black sails flying in the wind. My son has failed and he is dead, he cried, and in despair he flung himself into the cliff and fell into the raging waters below. From that day on, the sea was named in memory of Theseus, father, and to this day, it is known as the Aegean Sea. So, Theseus is kind of an interesting character. Actually, a lot of the heroes are. Jason kind of another hero who is rescued, really, by Medea, who risks everything to help him. She also commits fratricide and kills her brother to stop her father from pursuing them, tosses the body into the ocean, actually cuts it up and throws it in. And Jason 
is completely ungrateful. He does marry her. They have a couple kids, but then he ditches her for a younger woman and a better station of life, which is kind of interesting. So Medea goes crazy, kills her kids, and is taken off by her ancestor, the sun god, into the sky. And you just go with that. Theseus, he's interesting. Ariadne, he does kind of lead her on. This is a very simplistic translation of the myth. And there wasn't a disinterest. There are some interpretations that say that Dionysus, the god of life fluids and grapes and wine, as well as the theater, fell in love with her and had Theseus abandon her on the island. And when she awoke, Dionysus took her as his, uh, as his mate. It's also interesting to note, in case you do not know this, the Stark clan symbol is a bleeding hand. Apparently, according to my father, the Starks were initially from Germany, descended from a German prince that moved to Scotland, and we were called the Meyerheads. And uh, personally, I like Stark a little bit better. But the name Stark was applied when the bodyguard to King James I of Scotland was protecting the king who was out hunting and had wandered into the pasture of a bull. And bulls were very, very aggressive, charged the king and his bodyguard, my ancestor, grabbed the bull by the horns, just like Theseus grabbed the minotaur and flipped him over onto his back, thereby saving the king. He cut his hand on the bull's horn in the process. And so our family image is the bleeding hand. Yay, Stark clan. But you know, this notion of the bull myth, if that's coming out of Scotland and we've got uh, the Minotaur down here in Greece and we've got uh, the sacred bull in basically in Mesopotamia, Sumeria, in that area, it is pretty interesting. Even Zoroastrian mythology talked about the Mithratic savior who fought against a, a demonic bull, was killed as he killed the bull, essentially buried and resurrected. So the notion of the Minotaur figure definitely out there. It's kind of an interesting, interesting story. So I think we have made it through. We've got our Minotaur, we've got some good public entries, and then we've got our little funerary pet story. So at this point, I'm going to remind you to please support your animal rescues. Pug Rescue Florida is still there. There is a Florida rodent rescue. If you are curious about some other information, you may check out St. Petersburg Paranormal Investigation, which is my paranormal team, at SPPI Pinellas, P-I-N-E-L-L-A-S dot net. And I look forward to speaking with you all again. We'll move on to our next paranormal-human-animal hybrid. Take care and happy haunting. Pet Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Step into the supernatural world of pets every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.